This morning, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17 is where we'll be today. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. I'll be reading the text within the sermon, uh, as I often do. And uh, as we come to this text, so let's pray. Lord, may you teach us now. Thank you for your word. Uh, Speak through me and cause your people to hear what you have to say. Show us more of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your love towards us. Your mercy and grace uh, demonstrated mightily in your son. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, Among the great heroes of uh, Israel in the Old Testament, one could argue that there is none greater than the prophet Moses. Not only did the Lord uh, use him to deliver Israel from bondage in Egypt, but the Lord revealed his law through uh, Moses. Israel looked to him as the mouthpiece of God. And though he was God's prophet, it is quite interesting, quite significant that in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses revealed uh, from the Lord that there would come one day a prophet greater than him. We read this in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And it was a, this, this call of God to listen to this future prophet was a serious call. He warned Israel and even explained to them the consequences of, of not listening. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak to in my name, I myself will require it of him. Because God would judge that individual who would not listen to the words of his, this coming prophet. So it was important then to make sure that one would recognize the prophet and listen to this prophet. And, when, and, it, and, it, and the question maybe many of the Israelites ask is, how would they recognize uh, this prophet when he comes? Anyone can just show up, right, and just say, I'm, I'm the prophet. I, and whatever I say is the word of God. And God, uh, expecting their, their question, answers them in a few verses later. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Uh, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So whenever a prophet spoke in the name of the Lord or claimed to speak in the name of the Lord, the test of their authenticity was whether what they spoke came to pass or not. If what they spoke came to pass, then it was of the Lord. If it did not come to pass, then that prophet was not from God. Deuteronomy ends, uh, interestingly, at the end of Deuteronomy 34, having given this prophecy of this coming prophet. In 34, that this is the very last few verses of the book. Since that time... Uh, Joshua is probably writing this. No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. From that day on, the Israelites were waiting, and they had, they had not yet seen that coming prophet. And from that day on, they waited for this coming prophet. This uh, prophet would eventually come to uh, be a part of the, all the messianic prophecies found throughout the Old Testament. And so that they were expecting this coming prophet. And as we read in our call to worship, they even wondered if John the Baptist was the prophet. 
This prophet would be not only one who would know the Lord face to face. He would be one who would speak the very words of God. He would be one who would be able to perform, like Moses, the signs and wonders in the sight of all Israel. There would be no doubt about this prophet. And from that day forward, there are many prophets who came and spoke the word of God, but they didn't do many signs. There were some prophets, more like Elijah, Elisha, if you think about those guys. Uh, they did a lot, of, a lot of miracles, signs and wonders, but their words were not codified into the inspired scripture as Moses' words were. And so, whether it was Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, throughout the ages, Israel came to hear from many prophets, but none of them were the promised prophet until Jesus was born. But the problem, of course, was that very few throughout his life would recognize who Jesus was. Very few would recognize who, that he was the prophet. And Luke understands this as he's writing his gospel. He understands this, and he's particularly he's writing to a predominantly Gentile, God-fearing audience and who have come to believe in the Lord Jesus, but yet probably scratching their heads at the wondering why the predominance of the majority of the Jewish people as a nation had, were not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. So he writes this gospel to assure his readers of the truth, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the prophet. In today's passage, following Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, Luke basically continues Jesus' Galilean ministry. But he does so, and he now turns his focus to the miracles of Jesus. And in these 17 verses that we're going to look at today, Luke records for us two miracles that concern life and death. They're life and death situations. And as Jesus speaks and acts in each situation, they drive the audience, the the readers, the listeners of this gospel, to consider, who is this Jesus? It's not only for the audience in Luke's day, but it's, it's for us today. If you're kind of wondering who Jesus is, or you're not certain of who he is, then as you listen to these miracles of what Jesus did, that they would cause you to consider and maybe confirm in your hearts what you've believed, come to hear and understand and already believe in Jesus. And if you're not yet known who Jesus, do you not know, you know who Jesus is, then I pray that today uh, you might be introduced uh, to who Jesus is and come to know him as uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So <clears throat> we're going to take a look then today. It's only two miracles, two life and death miracles, I call it, because they involve life and death, that drive us or, to consider who Jesus is. Really, this, uh, <clears throat> that, and I, we arrive at this understanding, particularly in light of the passage that we'll preach uh, next time. Because there, uh, John the Baptist is going to respond, and we won't get to it today, but John the Baptist is actually going to send a delegation to Jesus and ask them, are you the coming one? Are you the, are you the Messiah? And so these miracles really, for as Luke's placed them here before, uh, to kind of drive us to consider, think in light of John's question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? All right, so let's take a look at these two miracles today. Let's, and I, uh, they might be familiar to you. Uh, may they be an encouragement to you, especially uh, those of us. And I'm, I'm sure in a church our size, there are some of you who are probably right now facing life and death situations, whether it's a loss of loved one or maybe a health, a health condition that you have. And uh, I find these words especially comforting uh, to, to those of us who may be facing these kind of situations, knowing that our God is a, is a God of compassion, and he sends his son to minister to us in these uh, life and death situations. Anyways, our first uh, miracle is the miracle of how Jesus saves a centurion's dying slave. 
He saves the centurion's dying slave. Now, it's interesting, even though while, as Luke writes this down, records it, although the miracle is performed by Jesus, he is the, the one who does the miracle, and you cannot miss the, the, the power and authority of Jesus here. The way that Luke actually tells the story uh, sort of puts our focus on the centurion. Uh, the one who's, who's the, the one who's experiencing the loss. It focuses on his request, his, his worthiness, as well as his faith. Even as it teaches us about Jesus' authority to save the dying, it, it also teaches us a little bit or about the kind of person that Jesus responds to in mercy. And so let's take a look at these, uh, the centurion and this, this miracle. First of all, we look at the centurion's request in verses 1 to 3. This is really the, the setting, but this, we find the setting of how the centurion comes to make a request of Jesus. Verse 1 to 3, we read, When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus... He sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And we'll stop there. <clears throat> in this setting, we, we find that it follows the sermon in, in chapter 6. It talks about how he completed his discourse or the sermon on the plain. And so after completing it, uh, he went to, back to Capernaum. That, remember, Capernaum was basically Jesus' headquarters during his Galilean ministry. It was there that in the synagogue that Jesus had uh, <clears throat> cast out a, a demon from a, a demon-possessed man, as well as it was there in Capernaum where he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, among many other miracles that were attested earlier uh, in Luke. Now Jesus essentially returns to Capernaum for a, a practic- another round of miracles, Recall also a little bit about Capernaum, that Capernaum was a, a, a center of commerce in that day, and this is uh, on the northern sea of, north of the sea, northern part of the Sea of Galilee, uh, where uh, a major road from uh, Samaria, Syria would, uh, would travel through to enter into uh, Judea. And so this was a significant trade route, whether it's trade, whether it's fishing, and understandably, whatever there's trade, whether there's fishing, there's going to be taxes. So there was a Roman polling station here where there would be taxes that were received and taken. And so you can imagine wherever there's going to be a lot of money, you're going to also find a lot of soldiers. And so there was soldiers based, uh, garrison, if you will, at this, at this particular town in Capernaum. And among these soldiers was one who was a centurion. This was a Roman soldier, a centurion meaning someone who was essentially a commander of, of 100 soldiers. So he was, a, he was a, maybe like a, like a captain uh, in our today's army. And as we, uh, we find here that this, uh, this Roman centurion has, has a slave. And this slave is, uh, <clears throat> is highly regarded by his, his master. And his slave was sick to the point of death. He was, he was dying, about to die. In the parallel passage in Matthew 8, verse 5 to 13, we actually learn that there that Matthew's account tells us that he was, the slave was lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. So whatever was happening to him, it was, a, it was not just like a, a peaceful dying. It was a fearful, tormenting kind of dying. It was paralyzed. He was unable to move. And maybe something uh, the sudden that took place. This slave was clearly suffering as he faced death. The centurion was not a cruel master, but a caring one. And like all of Capernaum, he had heard of Jesus, the miracle worker. 
And now that Jesus was back in Capernaum, he, he sends a delegation of Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come and save the life of his slave. That he sends a, such a delegation tells us of his respected reputation among the Jewish people. Keep in mind, he's a, he's a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's, he's the enemy. He's the occupier of this Jewish land. <clears throat> and yet, he sends this delegation. Keep in mind also, he's a centurion. He's a soldier. He's, he, <clears throat> he's the military police. He could have just marched over and, or even sent some of his soldiers over, commanded Jesus to come to his house. And if he wouldn't cooperate, he could force to threaten and threaten him or threaten him to come. But there's something different about this centurion. And in verses 4 to 7, we learn a little bit more about his character. We start to learn about the centurion's humility. Now, verse 4 to 5, we read there. When they came to Jesus, that is the delegation, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. It was he who built us our synagogue. It's interesting to note that whereas the centurion had asked Jesus to heal his slave, the Jewish delegation says, is described here as earnestly imploring. It wasn't that they were going begrudgingly. They were going willingly. They were advocating for his, on his behalf. They thought highly of the centurion. He was someone who was worthy in their mind to be granted his request. He had shown love for the Jewish nation. He was, he was, perhaps he was a God-fearer even. And most significantly, he demonstrated his love for the nation by building the synagogue. In fact, you go to Capernaum. If you guys have gone to Israel, you can actually go to Capernaum. You'll find the actual synagogue there and some of the, well, the, uh, at least uh, what's built on top of where uh, the original synagogue is. This tells us much about the centurion. He, not only since he could build the, the synagogue, he was probably had a, some means of wealth. He was not a poor man, probably a rich man. And because he had built the synagogue, the Jewish leaders believed that he deserved to have his answer requested. He deserved God's mercy. But of course, even as we listen to that, we can probably identify and think that there's something not quite right about that. Does someone actually deserve God's mercy? Maybe among men, we say, oh yeah, that person's a really good person. He deserves God's mercy. He does, she deserves God's grace and forgiveness. But in reality, as we understand the scriptures, all of us, none of us, deserve God's mercy, deserves God's grace. Doing good good deeds like this centurion does not make one worthy of God's mercy, right? In fact, none of us are worthy of God's mercy. No one can ever be righteous enough to merit God's mercy. No amount of good deeds you do will earn God's mercy, whether it is mercy for healing, mercy for salvation, mercy to answer your, your requests. So the centurion, and while the Israelites, the Jewish delegation, perceived him as being worthy, the centurion, on the other hand, demonstrates his humility by under, revealing that he understood that he was unworthy. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. 
Jesus was heading towards the centurion's house. And before he arrives, the centurion sends another delegation. This time, a delegation of his friends. And perhaps he had, had second thoughts of what he was asking of Jesus. And he realized that Jesus might not want to become, uh, come into his house. Because for a Jew to enter a house of a Gentile was to become ritually defiled, unclean. And this was not just any average Jew. This was a, considered a res- respected rabbi, someone who was known for his wonderful works, his powerful authority, authoritative teaching. So he messages Jesus to basically not to trouble himself, that, that he would not trouble himself to actually come all the way to his house, to enter in his house, this house of a Gentile. And notice his reason, for I am not worthy for you to come in under my roof. He sees himself for who he is, right? He, he sees that he's not worthy. He's not only a sinner, but he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew, he says. He knows he's, he's not part of God's chosen nation. He does, he's not in a, a, descendant, a, a, a descendant of Abraham. He's not a, a member of the covenant nation. In fact, twice he mentions how unworthy he is. We see in these words a kind of humility that, that is required when, when we approach Jesus. When we come to Jesus, no one comes to Jesus, oh, Lord, I am worthy to be forgiven and to be saved. That is the height of arrogance. But every one of us comes to Jesus recognizing that, Lord, we are unworthy. Our heads are probably, eyes are even cast down as we come to Jesus, crying out for his mercy. And later today, we're going to have our church family meeting. And part of church family meeting, we have new members. And we're excited. We have... We have a lot of new members today. I hope you, you're excited. You come for 11 of them, okay? 11 new members uh, in English and Cantonese ministry too. So please be sure to come if you haven't you know, made plans to. But uh, one of the, when, as a pastor, one of the pastors, we get to interview the members. And one of the questions I often ask is just a simple diagnostic question. If you, know, if you die today and stand before the Lord in heaven and Jesus asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer and I was just expecting people to always say, just give me the answer of that they believed in the, you know, the sacrificial you know, atonement of Christ, that he, he died on the cross in, for their sins, something like that. But it's really neat sometimes uh, here, in fact, this most recent time, uh, I heard at least uh, two individuals start off, the very first thing they came out of their mouths, they said, well, I would acknowledge that I'm, I'm, I don't deserve to go into your heaven. It's kind of like, uh, you know, it's, that's really cool. These two understand they have a, uh, that humble attitude, right? It's like we, none of us deserve to enter to heaven. We all enter because we're not because we're worthy, but purely because of God's mercy and through through the sacrificial death of His Son. Thankfully, God shows mercy to us while we were still sinners. At the end of verse eight, the centurion asked Jesus to simply say the word, and the servant would be healed. And this highlights for us the, the third aspect of the centurion, and that is the centurion's faith. His reason for such a faith that he says, Jesus, just simply say so, and I know my servant will be healed. He gives his reason in verse 8. Look there with me. <clears throat> for I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he, and he does it. As a soldier, the centurion understood authority. He was a man of authority. He was a man under authority. When he commands his soldiers or his slaves, they would obey right away because of his authority. And he, as a man of authority, recognizes the authority of Jesus. 
He understands that the authority would work in a similar way. And he knows that Jesus has the authority to do the same things that he does by commanding others to go, commanding things to happen, and they take place. This is a, a, a tremendous faith. Jesus had been sent under the authority of God the Father, and thus Jesus has authority to command things to come to pass. If Jesus says go, or come, or, or do this, that's exactly what will happen, because who Jesus of his authority. The centurion has faith in Jesus' power, a power over life and death, power to heal his dying slave. And if any of us are to come to Jesus for mercy, we must come in a similar kind of faith. A faith that recognizes that the authority of, the authority of Jesus over life and death. That he has the power to save us from the consequences of sin. Save us from eternal death. Save us from death itself. We must believe in Jesus' authority. That he is the resurrection and the life. In the next verse, we see verse 9 and 10, we see how Jesus responds to the centurion's faith and how he commends the centurion's faith. <clears throat> now, when Jesus heard this, he, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. It's, Notice that Jesus marveled at the centurion. What's really neat or cool is that only two times in the Gospels do we ever find Jesus marveling. One time, the only other time is in Mark 6, where he marvels at his fellow Nazarenes' unbelief of him. Here, he marvels at the centurion's faith, and he commends his faith. This Roman, this Gentile, Roman has great faith. This outsider, this outcast, this unclean man, this sinner has great faith. It stands out even more, this, the faith of this Roman centurion, when we compare it to another prophet who is visited by a military leader requesting healing. Uh, and perhaps the, uh, this was in the minds of the listeners, or, or, uh, but it, it, at the, we don't know for sure, but it's a great illustration. Remember the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 to 14? Uh, the Syrian commander, the captain of the Syrian army, Naaman, came to him. And he was covered with leprosy. And he came, and he, he came to Elisha, basically. And it was a, it's actually a really funny story, but you can look there. But when Elisha told him to say, actually, when he came, Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. He just, he just tells, sends his servant Gehazi to go, out, go outside and just go out there and uh, just tell him to go wash in the Jordan seven times. Basically, go take a bath seven days, seven times. And so Naaman gets upset, Right? Here, the word of the prophet tells him, go wash, you know, you have leprosy, go, go wash in the Jordan seven times. He gets upset because what? He, he, thought it, he thought that he was, in a sense, he was expecting something more miraculous. He expected the, the prophet to come out and wave his hands, you know, and do something magical or, or fantastic. And then maybe even like talk to him, address him, touch him perhaps. And then he would be healed. Of course, uh, uh, and so the, the Naaman had a pride. He thought that he was, would have at least had a face-to-face with the prophet Elisha. 
But instead, Elisha just tells him to, to go wash in the Jordan seven times. Thankfully, uh, Naaman has some uh, servants who tell him wisely, you know, if, if he had told you something, you know, crazy like that, would, would you have done it? Yeah, you would have. So here he's telling you something simple. Why don't you go do that too? And so he does. And as you know the story, Naaman's healed. Here, this Roman, in contrast to the Roman centurion, Jesus actually heads his way, but he sends down. He says, no, I'm not worthy for you to come near me. Just say the word. Just say the word. He has a great faith in, in Jesus. This Roman centurion had a great faith. But in contrast, and this is a strong contrast because this was a Roman. And Luke does this. Luke often contrast, tries to emphasize how the gospel is often rejected by Israel, but it extends to Gentile, the, Gent, the Romans in this case. Israel doesn't have such a faith. Luke is simply reminding uh, his readers what will be more revealed in Acts. And though Israel is God's chosen nation, descendants of Abraham, recipients of the law, participants in the temple worship, what they lack is faith in Jesus. Trust in him, the provision for their forgiveness of sins. This outsider, this Roman, this soldier, probably a murderer at at points, this wealthy man has faith and receives God's mercy. Though Luke doesn't actually describe the healing, but from verse 10, we can gather that Jesus answered the request because he, he, spoke, uh, he spoke that uh, and simply spoke it, and then the servant was healed because he was later found in good health. We could also just look to the a parallel passage too, Matthew uh, 8.13. There we, we actually find the words of Jesus. Jesus says to the centurion, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And by those words, uh, that moment, the, the servant was healed. This miracle serves basically to show Jesus' authority, right? His authority over those facing death. And he has power to, to bring, uh, to heal the dying. He merely speaks and this man, this slave is healed instantaneously. This is basically one whose words come to pass. But we also can't miss the emphasis on faith in this, in this uh, miracle. Before anyone can come to salvation, one must come in faith in Jesus. Faith that recognizes, first of all, who you are before the Lord. Unworthy sinner in need of God's mercy. And then secondly, faith that recognizes who Jesus is, one who has the authority and the power to forgive sins, to bring dead people to life, to bring about new birth, new life in all who come to him in faith. Who is the kind of person that Jesus responds to? Is it only the Jews? Is it those who are worthy? Is it those who are respectable? No. What we'll find by Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council is that the early church would come to believe that both Jews and Gentiles are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, not by any outward rituals or works like circumcision. And so Jesus, and we, we see Jesus' authority in this first miracle, how he saves the centurion's dying slave. We move then to the second miracle, how Jesus raises a widow's only son. He raises a widow's only son. Again, we, another life and death kind of miracle. 
demonstrating the authority of Jesus. But now, instead of a dying man, we find a dead man. Luke alone, interestingly, records the miracle. No, it's not found in any of the other Gospels, any, other, any place else in Scripture. And the focus here is on Jesus himself. And we see in verses 11 to 12, Jesus' encounter with death. He encounters death. Verse 11 to 12, let's look at the text. Soon afterwards, so clearly Luke intimates that this, is, this takes place after the previous miracle. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. This is the only time that the city of Nain is mentioned in the Bible. It is a small town, or a small city town. It was located about 25 miles south, uh, southwest of Capernaum. Uh, it's actually closer to Nazareth, about south, uh, five miles southeast of there. Jesus says uh, he's traveling to, has arriving uh, to, to Nain, is accompanied by his disciples. Not only the 12, but the, his, the larger group of disciples that travel with them, as well as a large crowd. Many people were always following Jesus around because, well, he had a teaching that was different from any other. He had power to heal, power to uh, cast out demons. He drew many large crowds wherever he went. And as they approached the city with his large crowd, coming out of the city from the, by the city gate is a sizable crowd that's coming out. In this, in this case, it's a, it is a funeral procession. The man uh, was carried, uh, being carried out. He had likely died that day. Uh, he was wrapped in cloths and lying on a, on a probably like a plank or a pallet, uh, often an open air kind of casket. The dead man being carried out with a large, with a sizable crowd. What we learn here about this, uh, this dead man, as a significant detail, is that he is the only son of his mother, according to verse 12. He's the only son of his mother. That word only son is a, is a theologically rich word. It has, carries a lot of weight, especially in the Gospel of John. It is, uh, I'll say it for us because it is uh, one of those important Greek words, monogenes. It's used in probably the most familiar verse to the world, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His monogenes Son, His only begotten Son. That's what it means. It really has this idea of the one and only. Emphasis the uniqueness. There's no another like this, one of a kind. This was a, her one of a kind son. She had no other sons. This is her only son. In fact, uh, you kind of wonder maybe how old he is. Later on, Jesus will call him a young man. So he's perhaps a teenager around that year, those years. This accompany in this large crowd is a, is a widow. This mother, is a, she's a widow. She's lost her husband. And now she's lost her only son. You can imagine, uh, if you just kind of put yourself in her shoes, it would be probably very difficult to lose a spouse. But for those of, of uh, among us who have lost children, 
Um, that's, uh, that's a pretty, pretty painful experience. She is now basically left. Uh, not only she's like, suffering the pain of her loss, but she's also uh, facing a life of being alone. There's no family left to care for her. And in those days, a widow was very vulnerable. You can almost associate the vulnerable with, with the homeless, the widows with the homeless, for eventually they would have no recourse, no means for the provision, no husband, no sons to provide for them, and therefore they would just simply grow poor and poorer. Although this day her neighbors have gathered with her, they mourn along with her, but she knows that tomorrow she'll be alone. In the province of God, as she walks this way of death, she encounters the way of life. This is no accident, of course. This is God's sovereignty, his providence. In the pain of losing her one and only son, God sends to her his one and only, his one and only son. And Jesus comes to minister to her in her sorrow. So we see, not only as he encounters her in death, we see Jesus, we're introduced to Jesus' compassion for the widow in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. He said to her, do not weep. Here, uh, Luke addresses, calls, identifies Jesus as the Lord. This is the Lord who is seeing her. This is her creator who sees her. This is her God who sees her. He perceives her, not just sees who she, that there she is, oh, that, that's the, the mother of the mother who was dead, but he perceives her pain, he perceives her sorrow, he perceives her situation, he understands because he's his, her Lord, her God, her creator. And he feels compassion for her. Now, this is the amazing thing about Jesus, right? He's creator God. You know, if we were all powerful and everybody was like grasshoppers, many of us would think, not even have second thought to have any compassion for the grasshoppers of this world. But here is this almighty creator, and he looks down upon his, this creation, the, uh, the one, he sees this one, and he has compassion for her. Uh, this word compassion, you've probably heard explained before, it's an idea that comes from a word that means refers to the guts, the intestines. Because in Jewish culture, that's where people would feel things. They'd feel it in their guts, as we often as we say in the English. He feels pity and sympathy for this weeping mother. And to lose a child is perhaps one of the greatest sorrows in this world. And even more when it is an only child. But Jesus has feels compassion for her. And this kind of compassion that Jesus feels is, uh, is not just, oh, I feel sorry, but doesn't do anything about it. Jesus is the kind of man who is, has the authority and power who when he feels compassion, he does something about it. Like the Samaritan who took care of the injured man, like the father who ran to his prodigal son, Jesus' compassion motivates him to first offer words of comfort to this widow. Do not weep, he says. Now, these are words that, that are not meant to discount her feelings. Uh, sometimes we say that. We say, when someone's crying, you know, you say, oh, don't cry. And then we can't do anything about why they're crying. We just simply, don't cry. But when Jesus says, don't cry or stop crying, he can do something about it. 
He has the power and authority. These words meant to comfort and prepare her for the miracle that he's about to perform. And we see in verses 14 to 15 now, Jesus' authority over death. Jesus' authority over death. <clears throat> Look back at verse 13, 15. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. In contrast to the previous miracle, where Jesus healed someone by simply speaking it from afar, telepathically, he just kind of said, uh, it shall be done as you have requested. And remember, this, the slave was healed. He could have done the same thing here, right? He could have seen the crowd coming out, and he said, oh, um, young man, be arise. But notice that Jesus comes up and these little details, he comes up and actually touches the coffin. The, the plank that's carrying the dead man wrapped in, in claws. You know, I don't know about you, but when you go to funerals and cemeteries, unless it's your beloved, very, you never touch the casket, right? We don't, we don't touch the coffin. It's just kind of like, oh, that's, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, it's not appropriate, you know? I can understand. If you touch the coffin, it's, it's kind of like, oh, you, you're probably, your family, you're, you're feeling great uh, sorrow, you're, you're mourning. But for Israelites, to touch the, the casket, to touch the, the plank, basically where the dead man's lying, was a religious no-no, you know? It made one immediately, instantly unclean. Ceremonially defiled. According to Numbers 19.11, to touch a dead man made one unclean for seven days. And therefore, if you were in that state, one would have to uh, perform purifications on the third day and the seventh day. And it was so serious that it was not like the purification would just simply wear off after seven days. If you didn't perform the, the purification, then if you actually, and you entered into the tabernacle or eventually the temple, you would be defiling the tabernacle. And you would be cut off from Israel. That means killed. So, of course, one could debate whether Jesus actually becomes unclean here because he is the, the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the, the perfect son of man. He, he, cannot, he cannot be, does not have any sin. But what we see here is that by Jesus touching the, this, the dead body, the, he is essentially revealing this, that he is willing to become unclean to bring a dead man back to life. And that is exactly what he will do on the cross, isn't it? He will become unclean to bring dead men back to life. He who knew no sin would become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteous of God in him and have eternal life. Now, having touched the coffin, it was probably like such a no-no. The, the bearers were probably, you know, they were already paid to do so. Uh, that, you know, they were unclean. But here, someone who touches the, the coffin, everybody just stops, like, whoa, hold up. And then Jesus speaks. He addresses the dead man directly. Young man, I say to you, arise. Now, think about how shocking these words would have been to those who heard him. This man's dead. You, you know, you, we understand when, uh, when people may speak to their loved ones at a, at, a, at a funeral and just crying out to them, but... 
No one goes up to to uh, someone who's dead and, and they're lying in their coffin and says, oh, get back up, come back to life, arise. And the stranger essentially comes up to this dead man and calls him to arise. But even more shocking is that this dead man actually does arise. He sits up. And he begins to speak to show that he was alive. It's not just, it's not just some, you know, muscle spasms. He actually gets up, he starts talking. And he's brought back to life. What Jesus speaks comes to pass. For Jesus speaks with authority. He has power over life and death. Jesus has authority like no other. No other. There is a power in his words. And it's, of course, no surprise when you understand that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Because we just go to Genesis 1-1, and we're in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and you see him simply speaking things, and things are coming into existence in six days. Jesus, and this same Jesus is now in the form of man, and he can has the power Yes, to, to talk to a dead man, dead corpse and say, arise. And yes, of course it'll arise. Jesus will in a very simple, he'll, he'll do this on other occasions. And later in Luke 8.54, he will speak to Jairus' Jairus's daughter and bring her back to life. What's interesting, kind of of note in verse 15, ends with this phrase, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. That phrase that Luke gives us would should is written written down by Luke, and but it would cause the reader, especially if anyone who's familiar enough with the Old Testament, to perhaps think about another incident in the life of one of the prophets. We've already talked about an incident from the life of Elisha. Now, this but this will recall an incident that took place in the life of Elijah in First Kings chapter seventeen, verse seven, verse seventeen. Elijah had been sent by God to a widow in Zarephath, and she had an only son as well. And they, she was basically preparing a fire to basically cook the last of her flour, the last of her oil, make some bread, eat it, and die. That's what she told uh, uh, Elijah. But God sent her and says, make me some bread. And then God, through Elijah, miraculously, rests, delivers this woman, and so it gives her jar of oil and her a bowl of flour never run out. Until the drought ends. But shortly after, as, she's, as Elijah's dwelling in that, place, in that area, her son, her one and only son, dies of sickness. And she then goes to Elijah and basically pleads and treats of him. And so Elijah then prays to God three times for the Lord to return the life of the child back. And God, of course, answers Elijah's prayer. In 1 Kings 17, 23 and 24, read this. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. By the way, that phrase, gave him to his mother, is the exact same wording that we find uh, here in our text. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The miracle in Elijah's day confirmed for this woman that he was a prophet of God, a man of God, because what he spoke came to pass. Here, and you take that forward to Jesus' miracle then, in contrast to Jesus, he doesn't have to pray three times to God. He simply speaks 
because he is God. And the son gets, comes back to life and he gives back his son to his mother. Jesus is the greater prophet than Elijah. Greater prophet than Elijah because Jesus is the great prophet. What comes from his mouth comes to pass. The people began are beginning to gr- realize there's something unique about this Jesus. He's not just like any, uh, any of the other prophets. And so in the last two verses, in verse 16 to 17, we see how Jesus' renown spreads. Jesus' renown spreads. Verse 16 and 17, look, last few verses. Fear gripped them all. Yeah, understandably, anybody who, a dead person coming back to life is going is to grip you with fear. And they then, but once they come to their senses, they realize he really was alive. They began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Two things are essentially reported of Jesus. He is a great prophet, and he is sent by God for them. And notice, they don't say that he is the great prophet. He is a great prophet. And they don't say that, uh, and when they say that God has visited his people, they're saying that God has shown, they're really not thinking that Jesus is God himself, but they're thinking that Jesus is a, an instrument of God, a man sent by God to come and to show his compassion and mercy uh, to them. And while the report falls short of recognizing of who he exactly is, that he is the great prophet or that he is the only begotten son of God, it drives people to begin asking, who is he? Is he the Messiah? Is he the coming one? And when we think about this, think about Luke's intended audience. As he's writing this to his, the audience, he's recording about how the, the, the people started thinking that he was a great prophet and that he was the God, the Lord God, or God had visited upon the people. Those who had believed in Jesus already knew the truth. They already knew that Jesus was the great prophet. They already knew that Jesus was the son of God. And by Luke, studying, by Luke recording these miracles again for them, they would, would be able to aware of that. And they would conclude, yes, he's not just a great prophet. He's the great prophet. Because what he speaks comes to pass. And, when, and he, he performs signs and wonders. And he does miracles like none other. And whatever he speaks comes true. These miracles serve to confirm the truth for those who heard. Jesus is the Messianic prophet and the Son of God. And so these two miracles, Jesus saving the centurion's slave and Jesus raising a widow's dead son, serve to show us the First and foremost, and primarily, Jesus' authority over life and death. He has power over life and death. But the, the application and what it drives for us at is that we confirm for us who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus of Nazareth to you? Is he merely a great prophet? Let's not make a mistake that the Israelites didn't just say, oh, he's just a great prophet. He's like a great teacher. He's a great philosopher that we, we like to follow. He's like Confucius and Lao Tzu. Just good words to live by. No, but he's not just a great prophet or philosopher. That would be a mistake. He is the great prophet, the fulfillment of God's promises, the one who would come after Moses, 
like him who would speak God's words and whom God expects of everyone to listen to him. Listen to my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was no charlatan. He was a miracle worker. His miracles were immediate, verifiable. If these were not true, we would find some writings. Oh, yeah, no, I was there. He didn't really do it. That guy, it was just, people were saying, this was a large crowd with a sizable crowd in name. It all could have been verified. The Roman centurion, there was all sorts of people around the Roman centurion, whether the Jewish leaders or whether the, Jew, the Roman centurion's friend, they all could have said, no, that did not take place. But we do not find any records of such denials. Nothing is ever said that, no, that did not take place until, of course, 2,000 years today when people are saying, oh, those, those things didn't take place. The fact is, the evidence of the historical records, in, in, not only in the scriptures, but look at all the existing uh, historical records in the world, would confirm that there's nothing that deny, would deny that Jesus did these things. In fact, because of the, the prevalence of the scriptures, we have a greater assurance that these things did take place. And they confirm for you and me who Jesus really is. He is the resurrection and the life. And he comes and he ministers to us in every situation, but especially in those life and death situations. And the important thing for us to know is whether we believe in him. I'll, I'll read, leave us with John 11, 25, 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this revelation of who Christ is. Thank you for showing us these miracles of Jesus. Thank you for reminding us once again the authority of our Lord and Savior, our God and our Creator, the one who came, humbled himself to come 2,000 years ago and, and die on the cross for our sins. The one who has compassion for a dying slave, has compassion for a widow who lost her only son. God, we praise you. We thank you that you are a God of compassion. We thank you that you have mercy towards people who are unworthy, who don't deserve your grace or your mercy. And yet, Lord, you show us mercy nevertheless. We thank you, Father, for saving us. Thank you, Father, for showing us, revealing Christ to us, for giving us new life in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that, that for those of us that have believed in Christ, that this message would not just be a message that we, that we told ourselves, but a message that we would share with others so that they too might come to know the salvation and the eternal life and the mercy and the grace that is found in Christ through faith. And Lord, we pray that Christ's name would continue to be magnified throughout this world. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, for your love towards us in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.